Welcome to Foibles, where my mom and I record conversations we have anyway. I'm Zoe. I'm Zoe's mom. Oh yeah, that's right. I have a name. It's Frida. <laughs> We're back for part three of Rudolph Valentino. The legend, the actor of silent movies, the heartthrob, and the man. The man. <laughs> <laughs> Very important. Where we left off last time is he was uh, getting out of New York after f- being fairly successful there as a dancer due to the scandal of the divorce and murder scandal of Blanca de Salles. He would no longer get work. So he uh, headed out west where a lot of his friends had gone and hope- hoping to break into the movies. Now, while he was in New York City, as I said last time, the center of movie making began in New York and New Jersey, mostly New Jersey, and that's where the Edison Company was. And then over time, bit by bit, the movie industry began moving west to the other coast, to California. And so at this time in 1917, it's kind of almost fairly split. California really is the up and coming. It seems to be where people really are moving to, but there still was a fairly robust New York, New Jersey movie making production at that time. And before he left in 1917, he had been in probably several movies as an extra, most of which were lost. Many of them are debatable as to whether he was in them or not, so there's a lot of controversy. But there is one for sure that still exists, and it's the first movie we have with him in it, and that is Patria. It was filmed in 1917. Remember, this was the year that the U.S. got into the war, so it was a very jingoistic, uh, pro-military fighting forces movie. And the only reason I want to mention it is because it is the first one where we see him. And if you decide to watch it, it's on YouTube. And it's not great, but it's interesting to see him. He's in a nightclub scene. All the extras in those days wore their own clothes. So he's wearing his own tuxedo. He's in the nightclub. Uh, At one point, he's sitting at a table with some people. Another time, he's standing up. And he just stands out of that crowd, I think. And he stands out because, I think, for the very reason that is part of his image and his power on screen is there's something about his outline and his physical self, his body on the screen where it just seems clearer somehow than everybody else's. It's like somehow he's got that, that energy to the camera where you're going, oh, he pops. So anyway, that's how I saw it. Now, of course, I knew I was looking for him, so... You can, t- you can disagree with me, but that's how I see it. And the other thing I just thought was interesting, and this is just the kind of thing I'm interested in, is that the lead in this movie was Irene Castle, and she was part of the duo of Vernon and Irene Castle, who were very famous exhibition dancers. Like, they were the top. They were the internationally famous exhibition dancers, and they created such dances and popularized them as the Castle Walk, which is kind of interesting as you watch it. Mm-hmm. They, they kick their legs up 90 degrees as they're walking, kind of like goose-steppy. But, I mean, I don't think they were intending to do that. It was sure. it was just the step. Anyway, so she stars in this alone. And I just thought that was a, a, an interesting connection that Rudy, as an exhibition dancer at the time, was in this movie where there was this famous exhibition dancer. And that's really all we have to say about his movie career in New York. So he goes on over, and we talked about how he was in a traveling show called The Masked Model. He was in the chorus. He ended up getting fired along the way. Uh, It was traveling from New York to California on a tour. And so he basically took his ticket and went off and got to California on the ticket, even though he was no longer being paid for the show. 
Now, there is a story that is unconfirmed by somebody who was there at the time who said that the guy who was running the show was jealous of Rudy because uh, all the women were giving him attention or the woman that this guy liked was giving him attention, so he paid him to leave the show and go to California. I don't I mean, know. it's believable, but... It, yeah, it's probably he probably got fired. Yeah. Because <laughs> he was, he was, you know, that's we can just say it up front. He was incredibly charming. He was could be kind and generous and really a really likable guy. But if you got on his wrong side, or you in any way seemed to impugn his dignity, his honor, I should say, or his masculinity, he was very thin-skinned about that. So who knows, maybe something happened and there was a conflict and, and he got fired. Who knows? But anyway, poor Rudy. So he gets to Hollywood. This time, L.A., including Hollywood, was really just a, a town. It was not even that big. And it still had like dirt roads out in front of places. Wow. And it didn't have apartment houses. It didn't, you know, there some people had houses and then people who didn't have houses lived in ho- the hotel or they lived in a rooming house. It was, it was very small. That's hard to imagine. <laughs> yeah, I know. It really is. And so when he got there, it was really just a small town kind of vibe and a, and a kind of a industry town because really the people being drawn there were being drawn there for Hollywood. It was sort of like the new gold rush. The first big influx of non-native peoples into that area was because of the gold rush in the late 1800s, which is really what led it to becoming a state. And then now an even bigger influx of non-native peoples were coming in in order to get into the movies. But there still weren't that many yet. So Rudy got there and he had a, a, a pal named Norman Carey who was an actor and stunt guy. He was a really big guy and just, you know, they got along really well. So he said, you can just stay in my room, you know. And so they, they, they became roommates and he moved around various times. And then uh, Norman Carey got uh, drafted mm-hmm. and had to leave. So Rudy lost that room. And then he ended up uh, finding a a place to live at a rooming house that was primarily, it seems, targeted toward ladies, often older ladies. And his job was to dance, was to be a dance instructor, to be basically kind of a taxi dancer in a way, but a little more genteel, Uh, maybe give a few exhibitions with a partner. And in return for that, he got to live there and probably got tips and maybe some food and stuff like that. So, you know, he was able to make it and live. And what happened was is the manager just decided, yes, this isn't worth it. It isn't worth it to me to, you know, remunerate this guy, so I'm just going to get rid of him. Well, when the ladies heard about this, (laughs) they got together and they went to the manager and said, if he goes, we go. (laughs) (laughs) That's really cute. (laughs) It is. It's very cute. Um, and you could just imagine, uh, you know, all the charm he, and his very sincere interest in these ladies, and they just said, no way. They loved him, yeah. They loved him. And that's a, that's a pattern, for sure, in his life. So he just did everything he could to try to make a living, and like he did in New York, but he mostly was focusing on the, the movies. And so, for example, he'd hang around the hotel where he had lived with Norman Carey, and a lot of people were there, like Lillian Gish and D.W. Griffith, who we already knew, and a bunch of people. And he would walk up to every director that he saw. He'd go there every day, and he'd walk up and he'd say, so, do, do you have any, any casting? Are there any jobs open? 
one guy said it was just he would come up and he was like so eager and so sincere and then he was so crestfallen when they got the negative answer and go away it was just you know it just broke your heart <laughs> he was so eager I mean, he was really persistent which is what he needed to be he really had a sense of showmanship he really had a sense of presenting himself, but he was trying to make a living, so he thought, well, what can I do? So he went and he took a course in how to sell security bonds. <laughs> and so he took this course, and he was going to try to sell bond, these security bonds to make a living, and he made a couple of sales, a couple of small sales, and then the war was declared, and nobody wanted to buy security bonds. Everybody was going to buy liberty bonds. They were going to buy government bonds. Bottom fell out of his market. So poor Rudy, that didn't work out very well. He tried again to get into the army, and back when he had been in New York, he took flying lessons. Despite his myopia, they let him take these flying lessons. But anyway, he learned how to fly. So after the war had come, he had tried to get into the Canadian Air Force this time. Mm. Because the British were in, and the U.S. had not yet joined or he'd already been rejected from the U.S. Uh, Army. I'm not sure which. But anyway, so he tried to get into Canadian Air Force. So he had been so he got rejected because of, of his eyesight there. So Canada and the U.S. and Italy all turned him down for military service. Hmm. Now, again, just reminding you, this is another blow to his masculinity that he had been rejected for military service. But lucky for us. But very lucky for us. Anyway, uh, when he was hanging around, trying to, you know, drum up business and everything, he met the Gishes, uh, Lillian and Dorothy Gish. Um, uh, most people are pretty familiar with Lillian Gish. She was the really big star of the D.W. Griffith movies. But her sister Dorothy at the time was very famous too. Dorothy died much younger. Lillian lived to a great old age. In fact, she was in Night of the Hunter, the old lady who saves the children. And they were just great pals with Rudy. So um, Rudy would go over to their house. They lived with their mother. He'd go over to their house all the time. He and their mother would go in the kitchen and cook up Italian meals and Aww. spaghetti and stuff. And he loved going. They said he loved going over there. And they just had a great time. It was a sense of family for him. So Lillian tried to get D.W. Griffith to hire him to be in a film. So they did you know, pump for him a little bit. But D.W. Griffith says to her, He's too foreign-looking. The girls would never like him. <laughs> My God, the guy was so racist that he wouldn't even take an Italian actor yeah, because he was a little dark, yeah, you know? I know, I know. And this is while he was shoveling Rudy's pasta that Rudy made into his face. Wow. Apparently. <laughs> I mean, he said it, you know, with Rudy there. Yeah. Uh, I, terrible, I know. He, you know, such good friends with them. And, and he had so many, many talents. He actually designed their riding habits from when they went out riding. He would design some other clothing at different times as well, right? Yeah, yeah. His partner's dance costumes. He would do that every now and then. It wasn't his main gig, but very interesting. You know, and he was trying to promote himself. So what he would do is, in order to get noticed, he would go stroll down Hollywood Boulevard in green golf stockings, white flannels, and an ornate vest, looking like a dapper dandy. Or he'd show up at the studio in a cowboy outfit, trying <laughs> to get a job in a cowboy movie. And there are pictures online of him in these cowboy outfits later when he, cause he loved riding and he loved going out camping and stuff. He looks great, perfect, he, he, perfectly at home. And this is my favorite thing he used to do. I love this so much. God, I wish I could see this. He would promenade on the beach in a white bathing suit, walking two white Russian wolfhounds. <laughs> <laughs> what a drama queen. 
His roommate, Norman Carey, said that Rudy would starve in order to buy suitable clothes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And if you think about the level to which he loved his food, and he loved to eat. Right. That That's really saying something. That's his hierarchy of needs, right? Maslow, for him, it's clothes. Right. <laughs> food. <laughs> People said that he was seemed really, really lonely, which I think is interesting because when you read it, he had a lot of friends. But I think he must have carried a really intrinsic loneliness inside him. Maybe it was the loneliness of an immigrant who loved their country, loved their family, and maybe it was that, or maybe it's just his personality that he was kind of... The romantic in him. Yeah, isolated him in some way. I don't know, but he got along with a lot of people, and obviously people were looking out for him and trying to help him and hanging out with him, so he wasn't alone. But he did really want to find a a girlfriend, shall we say. Find find somebody to, you know, have a romance with. And in fact, there's this very funny story where there's a woman who reminisced about Rudy. She had been a script girl back then. Her name is Florence Mack. Nobody famous. But anyway, she was at a party, and this gives us some insight into Rudy's approach to women in real life. <laughs> I think it's awesome. I totally go with him. Anyway, she, she's at this party, and this foreign-looking guy kept like kind of following her around and looking at her and is making you know she's like who is this guy I mean because it wasn't famous yet so she goes out onto the balcony and she's just hanging out out there and he follows her out there and she says he came up to her and said you are my ideal woman I could kiss I could kiss you from your head to your toes (laughs) (laughs) no beating around the bush yeah really (laughs) Like, what? no, what's your sign or anything? <laughs> she's like, what do I say to that? And she's like, no. I'm sure, I, I'm sure a lot of women would dig it I mean, if they were attracted to him. Anyway, I just think that's, that's hilarious. That's passion. That, that's sort of what his life was like. And so, and of course, in between all of this, he's going to the studios every day trying to find work. As a, a lot of actors were. It's interesting. He um, filled out an application and they still have it. And on the application, they asked was what the reason he wanted to act. And he wrote, tired of ballroom dancing. <laughs> yeah, he was pretty sick of that, that uh, line of work. But he wasn't sick of dancing. He still danced all the time. He would take women out, and they would go dancing, and he'd dance at parties. And so he loved to dance socially and for fun. But I think he was just sick of being on that tier and that rung, that aware of it yet, because he's only in his early 20s. But that's only going to last so long. And then you're going to be too old in terms of the way society looks at it and your ability to succeed. So he um, finally was able to break into the movies. And he had a bunch of movies in 1918, 19, and 20. He ended up being in a, a, quite a number of movies. In 1918, he was in three movies. One was a short, and that doesn't exist anymore. And then he was in one that I really like called All Night. And it's a bed, basically a bedroom farce. We both thought that one was fun. Yeah, it was very fun. It's a just a, a situation of sort of not mistaken identity, but but uh, people pretending to be other people in order to fool this big pompous corporate windbag. And he's uh, in love with this girl, and she's mad at him. And it's just very very cute. Yeah, they keep being thrown together, like having to share the same bedroom because they're pretending they're married, kind of thing. Yeah, and. What's really what's really was surprising to me is what great comic chops. I mean, he's just a natural comedian. He was so light and natural of everybody who was in that film. He was the one who was I thought the funniest because he was not he was not projecting it real hard. He was just really being it. 
And I, I thought that was really good. He's good at slapstick, too. He really is. It's silly, silly kinds of mannerisms and antics and all kinds of stuff. And, of course, he's very physical, so he can do falls and things like that. And then he was in this other film called The Married Virgin, which we did not care for too much. Um, it was okay. He plays a bad guy in this one. And I, I need to say aside here that people say, well, he always played the bad guy until he got... Became dis- a hero, yeah. ...discovered and became this ro- this sexy, romantic hero. And that's not true. He played equal parts, I think, or f- very close to being good guys and bad guys, just because of his... So, I mean, though there was prejudice and racism about him being dark, it's not as quite as bad as D.W. Griffith would have us believe. <laughs> Yeah, he plays an all-American role pretty frequently, so... Right, yeah. exactly. Uh, so anyway, in The Married Virgin, he is a bad guy, and he's very, you know, it's not a great one, but he is very conniving and manipulative and hand-kissy. And he has a mustache, right? Yes, he has an amazing mustache. I don't know if it was one that he had to grow or if they put it on. It's probably fake, because those movies went so fast. I don't know if you had time to grow such a lush mustache in such a short <laughs> amount of time. Anyway, the part uh, of the movie that I really uh, liked and noticed was the uh, there was a, a, a fem- two female leads. One was the young girl. Um, young, she wasn't really a girl, but she, young woman, and who's kind of tapioca and don't really notice. And then there was this other woman who was his lover, who was uh, a full, tall, full-bodied, beautiful woman who had the most amazing clothes, even in black and white, yeah, her we, clothes popped off. We were like, wow, look at that. What's she wearing this time? Those must be her own clothes. They were, and really they were. Cool. Yeah, she looked, she was fantastic. And she did a really good job, but uh, and she tried to start her own production company. The woman's name was Kathleen Kirkham. And she, unfortunately, uh, ended up having a very sad end in her life because I, I think a lot of it, again, was the fact that um, forces were stacked against allowing a woman to break it's hard for everybody but for women it was really particularly hard and she just couldn't get get in on that and then in 1919 he made another movie uh, and these movies were usually made like in two weeks I mean they were made really really fast mm-hmm. so uh, I guess he only got one movie in 1919 but it was a really I enjoy what again he plays a all-american guy it's called the delicious little devil yeah, he gets to co-star with his friend Mae Murray, and she's very bubbly and energetic. And she does, but she does dance, and we thought that she didn't dance very well, which is funny because she clearly knew how. So yeah, maybe I don't know. I mean, yeah. and Mom is a trained dancer, so yeah, right. <laughs> she can back me up here. I was kind of going. Well, I mean, there was some good stuff in there, but it really wasn't. It didn't look professional to me. Yeah, but yeah, never know. She was a Ziegfeld Follies girl, so what kind of? She danced on Broadway, so I guess. But anyway, she's very funny. So she was pretty delightful in it. And then Rudy plays, and this this became a template for him. First half, he's kind of a callow, um, lushy, rich boy. What's what's the word? Playboy. Yeah, when you're when you're trying when you're trailing after women, you're trying to get yeah, skirt chaser, skirt, tail chaser. Yeah, kind of guy. And then second half, he's a mensch. He falls in love with her. And and love transforms him into a decent, heroic guy. So the benefit of this movie, which I did enjoy, I enjoyed it. It was more like middling, you know. It uh, it was, of course, seeing Rudy in every aspect because he's great. Hand-kissing, being louche, lounging around. There's a bunch of punch-ups and door-smashings, too, that he did, which are really pretty good. But also seeing Mae Murray was pretty fun. It's not a very long movie, so I, I recommend it. I enjoyed it. 
and then we get into uh, 1920. And then this is this is a pivotal 1920-21 are the pivotal years in his life as an as an actor. Um, he star he, well he didn't star in he appears in a terrible movie called Eyes of Youth. I think you even remember this one better than me. Yeah, we thought that this one was really bad. Um, this is the one in which. Uh, a girl. It's a sliding doors kind of movie where it's sort of like, oh, this mystic comes in. Oh, well, if you marry this guy, this is what's going to happen. But if you marry this guy, this is what's going to happen. And so there are three or four different men. I, f- I guess three. And and he tells her what her future is going to be with each of these men. And there's a part. There's a third part, and Rudy's in it, and he plays a bad playboy who's, you know uses women and stuff like that and and that's the only part he was in in that movie so it was a kind of smallish part so if you want to watch it just skip to the third part see Rudy which was is worth it and then you're good but this is a really really important film because this is the film where a woman named June Mathis saw Rudy and said he's the one and June Mathis was a very very important person at the studio. She was kind of almost like a production head. Uh, she had an unusual amount of power and, and she she wrote scripts. She was very big and uh, known for writing scripts, which is how she got into it to begin with. She came from a poor family and she ended up being able to write scripts and make some money. And then she also would do the production stuff. She'd pick the director, she'd get actors, she would you know, do all kinds of things. The studio had bought the rights to this novel called Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse, which was a book about World War One, about war, about the badness of war. It's really an anti-kind of war film. It uh, took place in Europe, and it was sort of like a house-divided kind of thing where this family, some of them were German and some of them were French, and they're going into the World War One, where these two countries were adversaries. So that's kind of basically what the film is about. Anyway, there was a key important role of a young man who is torn by this whole thing, and she decided he was the one to play this young man. His name's Julio, and so she's really pumping for him uh, to get this role, and nobody wants to give it to him because they want to put in a more, they want to put in more of a quote-unquote all-American looking guy. And no one believes it. While that's happening, he did a couple more movies in 1920. So Stolen Moments was another, uh, it was a lot of hand kissing in this one, which is really the only benefit to it. But he's a hand kisser par excellence, my friend. And he, but he's only in it like 15 minutes. So I think it's very worth seeing his 15 minutes in this. But the rest of the movie, I don't even remember what it was about. It was really boring. He also did a film called Wonderful Chance, and that, unfortunately, is a lost film. It's, there's only three minutes of it that exists, and that's on YouTube, so you can see that. But it's awesome. I really want to see it because he plays a gangster, an underworld gangster. That's pretty great. Yeah, he never reprises a role like that yeah. for the rest of his career. He's got a fake mustache, and he's got his hands in his pockets, and he's doing all the body language of a low-end thug. Thug, you know, yeah, basically he's a thug. You can tell already he's already working and knows, kind of instinctually knows how to use his body to portray a character, like what kinds of gestures that that person would use. And he incorporates them very consistently in his performances. And so it's really great because there's just a total different body language in that little clip. 
to see it? <laughs> well, they maybe they'll find it someday. So then what happens is June Mathis has never even met Rudy at this point. She saw him and she wanted him to be in the film, but she didn't want to get to know him or be friends with him because she felt that would be used against her when she was trying to to get him the role. Because they go, oh, he's just your friend. Oh, you're just in love with him, or whatever they would say. And she wanted him because she knew he would be the best person for the role, as was amply proved when the movie came out and when it was made. So she finally was able to get him this role. He's, of course, thrilled. And as Rudy does, he leapt into the role. He read the novel cover to cover. He researched the part. He did, you know, everything to to get himself ready. And he ended up going on set and the director, Rex Ingram, did not like him. (laughs) They did not get along at all. Alice Terry was the lead woman and Rex Ingram was kind of, was interested in Alice Terry and they did end up marrying later. So why he didn't like Rudy, hard to say. Because he had been foisted on him and he didn't want him for the role. Uh, because uh, Rudy was very attractive and maybe... Drawing the eye. Drawing the eye. And, I mean, because Rex Ingram was a good-looking man, too. Mm. And so maybe felt he was competition. Ingram had been an actor earlier on. Who knows? But Rex Ingram had an ego the size of any big actor. And he felt that, as the director, he was the star of the movie. Because this is the time of D.W. Griffith. And it's like... Yeah, there were actor stars, but Chaplin was an actor star, but he was also director. D.W. Griffith was a big, big star as a director. And Ingram, I think he sought that kind of fame and that kind of uh, recognition that he was the one who made the movie great and so forth. And I have to say right off the bat, watching his movies, I don't think he was that good of a director. There you have it. He threw a lot of technical stuff in there that I think would have been dazzling at the time. He was recognized as a good director at the time, where you know he would use things, particularly in the editing, where there would be image over image and dissolves and various tricky, trickstery things. Like in Forest of the Apocalypse, somebody would be thinking about war, and, and you get their thoughts of how bad the war was or how they're feeling, because then over their heads you would see the four horsemen galloping on their horses, which now feels cheesy but at the time was fairly innovative yeah there's a lot of that uh in the movie the sort of portentous bringing the biblical into the world war ii and things like that but overall we didn't think the movie was super great but rudy's part is really really great so right exactly and so we've got these parallel things running here of his movie career and his real life so let me just backtrack to the beginning of uh, 1918 when he's starting to make all these movies and let you know that his mother died in 1918, which you know is going to be huge. So he's been away from home for quite a long time, for five years, and you know he's been writing to her and everything, but uh, he knew, and he knew she was ill, and he got a telegram from his brother Alberto saying that she had died. And he wrote, tremblingly, I tore open the letter to read that my mother had been gone for four weeks. There was also a farewell note she had written to me on her deathbed. I dropped on the bed in a spasm of grief. I know. And I think that maybe this is a bit of where people were saying that he seemed just bereft and that for like a whole year, it was just like he was in the deepest depression and grief and so forth. And it really took him a long time to, to get over it. And then what happened is... I guess he must have started coming out of it, or maybe it's because he met Gene Acker, 
who became his first wife. He met Jean Acker and she was so simpatico, sympathetic and kind and she herself had, was going through some hard times and you know they really sympathized with each other and she was very beautiful. I think she's the least beautiful of all his women but she still was beautiful and she looked kind of like a Blanca de Sol. She was very petite and thin and had dark hair and dark eyes and very pale skin. An actress and basically they just got along. She loved to ride and they would go riding in the moonlight in the canyons. So it was like a very romantic friendship, if you will. And of course, Rudy, being Rudy, he falls head over heels, crazy, madly in love with her without even really knowing anything about her. So two months after they met, they got married. Wow. And he failed either to notice the symptoms, she didn't tell him this, but to notice or to acknowledge that she was a lesbian. What? I mean, she had had a couple relationships with men, but really she was, she was, a, she was a, a woman who preferred women, for sure. And she was part of a group called the Sewing Circle that were all friends and close to Alla Nazimova, who was a great Russian actress on stage. She did Ibsen, she did all the great classics. And then she was brought over to Hollywood and really her movies, she just doesn't translate to, to film very well. Also throwback to our Val Luton series of podcasts. She was Val Luton, the producer's aunt. Yes, his mother's sister. So she came over and she was paid just bucket loads of money because it was very prestigious to bring over these European actors, stage actors, and put them on film. And Oh, and she's, she's a great artiste. Oh, she was an amazing character. And she uh, was definitely a lesbian, and she had a, a circle of lesbian women, and they were all very closely connected. And then she had women in her circle who weren't lesbian either. You know, it was just a circle of women. But it was known to be a lavender group. And Jean Acker was Nizimova's lover and Jean Acker had met another woman named Grace Darmont who was a much younger woman, younger than Nazimova, more like her age. And so she fell in love with her and so she was having an affair with her and Nazimova was trying to get her back. And so she was caught in this triangle where she was being pulled one way and the other way. And there's all this drama, because believe me, Nazimova was nothing but a piece of drama. For example, I forget, I think it was when Val Luton's in-laws came over to meet her. His his potential in-laws were very... Um, they were a very conservative family. Yeah, very conservative family. And they came over to meet her as part of the meeting the family thing. And when they left, someone said, oh, oh, that woman. She probably was kind of rude because she was so hoity-toity, but there's no way that this these people were going to approve of her. Oh, that woman, and she hears it, and she says, Nizimova is not that woman. She is the woman. Yeah. <laughs> That's that, in a awesome. nutshell. Yeah, exactly. So she was very a fire. Anyway, and like, for example, her palatial grounds and house called the Garden of Allah, where they lived. And later it was built into a very, very famous apartment complex where like F. Scott Fitzgerald and people mm. like that lived like in the 30s and 40s. She had buffets of caviar, perfumed cigarettes and purple divans Ooh. that she would lounge on. And she'd say things like, my friends call me Peter and sometimes Mimi. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you.
Gene Acker found this calm oasis of sympathy in Rudy and probably married him. I mean, she's kind of crazy, frankly. She, it's hard to figure out what her motivations are sometimes, but it could be guessed that she thought this was a way to get out of this situation. The problem was is that, that Rudy, she's a lesbian. That <laughs> Rudy was going to expect to have sex with her when they got right. married. <laughs> but at one point, before they got married, Gene Acker wanted to help Rudy out. And she had a lot more connections, and she was more successful than he was. And she had a car and everything, which he loved. So she wanted to introduce him to Nazimova, because maybe he could get into a movie or something. So she brings him up to the table where Nazimova is, and she introduces him, and Nazimova just takes one look at him and says, and, oh, no, she didn't look at him. She won't look at him. She looks away, refuses to meet his eye and says, how dare you bring that gigolo to my table? How dare you introduce that pimp to Nazimova? The funny thing is, is that we don't know exactly when, but not very long in the future, he and Nazimova became great friends. And Nazimova became quite a mentor to him mm. and helped him with his acting and stuff like that. So uh, this again shows Rudy's charm. Uh, his charm generally, and certainly his charm with women, that uh, it, that he was able to forgive that. I mean, because she said this in, in front of a room full of people in Hollywood. Right. Everybody heard it. And he was able to forgive that and uh, become good friends with her. So, you know, that's really kind of a nice side of, of his personality, I think. Anyway, so they uh, they went ahead and got married after all of this. And, God, Rudy, you're always in the paper. These things happen to you. What? Why? Why? So it's their wedding night, and they go to the hotel where they're staying. And as was usually kind of the custom at the time, especially since people didn't, like, live together usually back then, is the woman would go into the room and prepare herself, get into her nightgown, have some time alone to kind of steady her nerves because she's supposed to be a virgin. And all that. So so Rudy goes and, and he's in his dressing gown or whatever. Maybe they even had their own rooms. I don't know. Uh, so he comes to the room and he goes to, to open the door and the door's locked. And so he knocks on the door and she won't answer. And he knocks on the door and she's like, go away. And he knocks and he knocks and he's getting really upset because now again, he's being rejected as a man. It's another blow to his masculinity. Plus, you know, he's in, deeply in love with her. He totally doesn't understand. And there's this, this pattern of the passionate, you know, if you're passionate Latin, this is, you know, you react. And he was just really upset and he was yelling and he was pounding on the door and she's not going to let him in. And so eventually he has to drag himself back to his room. I guess they had separate rooms or something. And, you know, and then and she's, the next day she's disappeared and she goes to live at Grace Darmont's house. Wow. <laughs> Ouch. I know. Ow. So he writes her letters begging to see her and tells her that, you know, he loves her, that he's gotten an apartment for them and that she can move in and that he, you know, wants the best for her and he loves her and so on and so forth. And then she's like responding to him very inconsistently, ignores him, tells him to go away. And then she writes him letters saying, oh, I'm remembering my, my, Darling boy, be good little, be good little boy. I wish my you were in my arms. Huh. Or he, she would say, "Okay, I'll meet you. We'll meet at the hotel, and we'll have a meal together, and and he'd go there, and he'd be all excited because he thought, oh, we're back together.' 
we're back together again and you tell people we're back getting back together and then she wouldn't show up or she would have lunch and then he then she ghost him after that so she ghosted him time and time again eventually he got the message but they didn't get divorced so they got married in november of 1919 and they didn't get divorced for till 1923 and you wonder why that happened and well first of all there was no no fault divorce at the time somebody had to do something wrong and so somebody had to have an affair or whatever and i think that rudy later he said that was a mistake he should have annulled the marriage right away because um, there was no sex and in those days you could say if the marriage wasn't consummated you actually weren't married so it was just an annulment but um the guess is that he probably didn't want to go to court a because he was passionately in love with her at the time and didn't want to let go. B, he didn't do it sooner because of his background, of his history with being called a pimp and being in the newspapers. He didn't want this to be in the newspapers because it was going to be. It was going to be picked up in the newspapers and maybe publicized that his wife wouldn't have sex with him, which is pretty a big blow uh, in one's pride, I would certainly think. And... You know, people, so that's probably why he didn't do it. And it really wasn't until he met his second wife that he got motivated to want to get a divorce. In the meantime, he does Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse. Now, Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse was was the film that was his breakout. As as I already said, he played Julio. Um, His part in it is awesome. He is the favored son of this patriarchal grandpa in America before this family splits up and goes to different parts of Europe to fight. So he was raised by the grandpa to be like brash and bold and like free with the ladies and very haughty. And the thing that just really caps, I mean, it's so fantastic, is he does the tango in a gaucho outfit that is the hottest thing ever. It's I awesome. Mean, I mean, really, you got to see it. It's amazing. Yeah, if you're not going to watch the film, definitely go on YouTube and watch the dance. Um, there, you can find it, you know, straight from the film. But there's also a YouTuber that we like a lot who... Um, it's called My Silent Boyfriend is their channel. Right, and so they make almost exclusively Rudolph Valentino videos where they, you know, splice and edit footage of his and set it to music and stuff, and they're pretty awesome, actually. And so they they take this scene and edit it to a song, and some parts get slowed down at times, and I, I feel like it really helps you see the dancing and, like, what's going on, He how graceful he moves, and how he, like, handles a partner and stuff. So highly recommended. It'll be in the show notes, the link to that that video and and the film is fairly long and as a film I don't know maybe I need to watch it again but I found it kind of tedious though again it's worth it because Rudy isn't in a lot and he just plays this this part so well of going from being the this hot callous Latin dancing womanizer womanizer to being a pure loving self-sacrifice himself and also respect his beloved's character and her morals and essentially uh, sees the the bigger picture in terms of relationship and not just as after what he wants. 
and he dresses very well and he moves so beautifully. And it's interesting because, again, this might be a reason that, another reason that Rex Ingram decided to take against him, but this was Rudy's first big role. And June Mathis had really gotten this for him and they bonded. It really was like they were soulmates in a way. You know, they really, you know, had this almost deep familial connection with each other. She's only eight years older. Oh, interesting. Yeah, she looks old. She looks older than that, and she definitely wasn't his type at all. But in terms of physically, yeah. But he, you can see the pictures of them together, and you can see a lot of them online, and it's really pretty adorable. How you know, he really does cast his eyes on her and keep his eyes on her, and he really relied on her, and she supported him very, very much. And he said that while he was acting, he would keep his eye a little bit on her because she she stayed the entire time. Uh, while they were filming, and if he saw a furrow, a frown begin to form between her eyebrows, he would start to do something different because he would know what he was doing was not good. <laughs> Cute. And she would take him aside privately and quietly and give him instruction and direction and try to give him a, a good sense of what he should do. And really, that's what she should have done. She should have been his acting coach because his performance in this is really, really good. It isn't that broad. I mean, does some of the, the mime that's required in a silent film, but most of his acting is in, with his eyes and his face and his and, and, in a, and in a pretty strong but subtle way. Yeah. Well, this part isn't subtle, but we, there's a part where at the beginning when he's still being a wild boy, he uh, takes a big draft of a cigarette or a cigar and blows the smoke out of both of his nostrils, and it's really great. And so, you know, while they're making the film, he always loved gadgets. He loved cars and mechanical stuff, cars and cameras. And, you know, he ultimately owned many cameras, including movie cameras. He just loved anything mechanical. And so he started to learn about filmmaking while he was on, on this film. He really was watching, because this was not just like a churn him out. And so he watched everything and uh, began to learn, and he learned a lot more about acting. And he said, I played what I knew to be myself. And when finished, he turned out to be Julio, because Julio is any man who lets his weakness dictate his circumstances. Hmm. And I think that's a very prescient statement about his life, is that he had that weakness in which his fame, which is coming very soon, just bowled him over in so many ways. And really, he wasn't able to take control, which he did say uh, was was one of his one of his great uh, sadnesses in life. Is that his, his life got out of control? But anyway, he was very happy with the film, and the reviews were stellar. The, the one of the reviews said that uh, it was a big hit, and it lifts the silent drama to an artistic plane that is never touched before. Wow. Yeah. That is a good review. And this is one where, I mean, it, may, it was a huge, huge moneymaker. People saw it multiple times. There were lines around the block. They had to run it practically 24 hours a day at some of the theaters. And, of course, the, the person who got the most attention was Rudy. He does make the film. It is fantastic. It still probably would have been successful with somebody else, but it never would have been that, that Olympus of films if he hadn't been in it because he is the he's the thing that is special and sui generis of everything that's in it and Rex Ingram we probably saw it but he certainly read it when he read all the reviews and everything and that made him really hate Rudy I mean he mm -hmm. just hated him after that because he thought he was just a trumped up 
flash in the pan, you know, nothing. And Rex Ingram was the great artist. So this was, yeah. Well, poo-poo Rex. Well, and the thing about Rex that we'll see is Rex Ingram be, is really just a uh, an exemplar, an individual person who is like all the men of America when Rudy really becomes famous because it's really pretty much what their attitude. He really polarized genders, I swear to God. Um, and that's all coming up very soon. So throughout this whole time, he is really trying to get Jean back. And uh, it, it's just sad because even Nazimova, when, when she made friends with him and everything, she had given up on Jean at this point. <laughs> she said that Jean's marry him was the worst thing she had done on top of all the other worst things she had done. <laughs> But they were, but they, like I said, they became friends. So she cast him in, as Armand in Camille, where, uh, of course, she's the star. And and he's so prepossessing on screen, and he pops out so beautifully that she cut almost all his scenes. Oh, um, she needed to be the Yeah, she cut them down. Yeah, exactly. And then really you watch it, and it really is kind of boring. And there's a, a scene where, uh, apparently there's a scene where she died, and he, he was... He, he wept and he emoted so beautifully and it was so touching that everybody was crying. Wow. She cut that scene. <laughs> <laughs> That's such real shame. I wish I could see that. Yeah. Yeah. And, and she was in charge of every film she did. And But the one interesting thing is that the set d- director uh, decoration was done by a woman called Natasha Rambova whose birth name was Winifred Shaughnessy. <laughs> Went pretty exotic there. Yeah. I just want to say that the... Um, that is the kind of the one thing that stood out to me about the movie Camille was the the sets and everything. I remember them being kind of expressionistic yes. and and Very deco, striking, yeah. yeah, or Art Nouveau or yeah. really more Art Nouveau. Yeah, exactly. They really were, so and, she's and the, good at it. Yeah, and the costumes and everything, uh, and yeah, she was very good at it, and very much um, au courant of the time. I, I really think it's interesting what. Maybe she would have done later in her life if she had continued working in the movies or continued doing design. Would she have moved with the time or would she have been just too outre, you know, too um, old, old style? I, I wonder. But she's very talented, very talented at it. And so uh, we don't know exactly when they met. I think they said they met on the next movie he did. And But we'll get into Natasha next episode. We'll just talk a little bit about Rudy's development as an artist. Nazimova had been a student at Stanislavski's studio in Russia before she had come to the U.S. And Stanislavski was a very great teacher of acting. The school of the method that we know kind of evolved from his teaching, and it is not the same as his teaching because he did not use sense memory. He did not say, go into your old feelings of when your puppy died and get that those tears up and then you can use that. He it, That really evolved from his teaching. But he was a split off of the time from acting, in particularly in Europe, but generally where it was about emoting. And when I say emoting, I mean projecting your voice pitching your voice, and then using a lot of gesture, uh, which really came out of old-style theater. You can see it a lot in classical ballet as it's still performed today, where you you point and you, you touch your head, you put the back of your hand to your head, you do these things to indicate your emotion. So a lot of acting was indicating. 
And you can see that, again, it's a lot of things that people like to laugh at in the old-time movies, but yeah. that was the style. It was kind of a language of symbolism, yeah. Exactly. And it was a, there was a very specific school called the, the Del Sart School of, of speak, Speaking. And it, there actually is a book you can read where it says, this, this gesture means this, this gesture means this. And people actually practiced and trained on it, and they used it not only in acting, but in oratory. So when speakers would go up and, and do oratory or someone in the parlor would do a dramatic poem or speech, you did these gestures. It was part of your, uh, your presentation and it was considered incomplete without it. So Stanislavski came up with the idea of naturalism, if you will, where you're not, the gesture comes out of the situation that the character is in and that the emotions are emotions that, that come from you, that, that are emotions that you can feel. Um, so that was just a huge break from the old style of acting. And Nazimova had studied with him and apparently had used it to great effect, even though she's so grand, I don't know how she could... <laughs> but anyway, and she acquainted Rudy with the, these principles and helped him understand and learn about that. And he had already been very natural and he had already immersed himself just instinctively in his parts and learning about them. And so after learning about this, this became his technique. So before we had Brando or Dean or any of those people, Rudy would actually uh, immerse himself in the same way. He, the clothing became very important. It was always important to him, but in terms of that it specifically speak to the character, not just that, that he looked good. Sometimes he would just spend all day in character like Daniel Day-Lewis would. So I think it shows. I think he's really very good in his parts. So we're going to wrap up this part here, but that was a really great launching into Rudy's career, him as an artist, his first marriage. And next time we'll get to talk about the movies he makes, sort of the Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse being a smash hit. So his his stardom begins. Yeah, the stardom begins and and his uh, romance and marriage to his second wife. Which is really the great romance of his life. It really is. It really is. And I think great sadness too. Yeah. See you next time. If you want to get in touch with us, shoot us out an email to foiblespodcast at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for listening.